0: Today's JJ Reddick podcast is brought to you by Belvedere Vodka. Produced in one of the world's longest-running distilleries, Belvedere Vodka is the world's finest all-natural vodka. Crafted by a collective of master distillers, Belvedere is made with non-GMO Polish rye, pure water, and no additives. Recognized for quality, Belvedere was named the ISC World Vodka Producer of the Year in 2015, 2016, and 2017. Enjoy a delicious cocktail with Belvedere Vodka today, and remember to always drink responsibly. this week's episode of the JJ Redick podcast. As many of you know, I enjoy food. Like a lot of you, I consider myself a foodie and I'm fascinated by the lives and the work of chefs. Uh, there's a restaurant in my now hometown of Brooklyn called Lilia. The chef Missy Robbins opened it a couple years ago. Um, it is absolutely the best restaurant that I've eaten at in Brooklyn Missy was kind enough to give me about an hour of her time. Uh, she's had an illustri- illustrious career as, as, a, as a chef. She's been nominated for James Beard Awards. She was the head chef at Evoche when they had Michelin Stars in 2009 and 2010. And she's now at Lilia, the, the owner of Lilia, uh, one of the hottest restaurants in all of New York City, not just Brooklyn. Without any further ado, let's get to my conversation with Missy Robbins. So we met like 5 minutes ago. Yeah. And and one of the things you just said to me was that it was it was very unlikely that you would open a restaurant and live in Williamsburg. Why is that?
1: I knew nothing about Brooklyn many years ago. And people kept saying I was looking when I left Avoche, I was looking for restaurant spaces and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do and I was looking all over Manhattan and people kept saying look in Brooklyn, look in Brooklyn and I was like I'm not I'm not looking in Brooklyn. Like, I'm not interested in Brooklyn. I don't understand Brooklyn. I don't know anything about Brooklyn. And this was now like 2013, 2014. So it was a while ago. And I had looked in Manhattan and we just weren't finding the right space for the right money that felt right, that just like nothing was working. And my business partner and I both lived in the West Village. That's how we met. And we really wanted to open there. Like it was our home. and. It just wasn't working. And this sort of opportunity in Williamsburg came along. And my business partner said, can you just go look at the space in Williamsburg? And I was like, yeah. Am I allowed to swear or not allowed to swear? Oh, you can cuss as much as you want. I can. Okay, great. I said, this is a direct quote. I'm not fucking opening in Williamsburg. (laughs) This was all through text. And he said, can you do me a favor and just go look at the space? And I was like, sure. I'll go look at the space. So this was a converted, this was an auto body shop before we took it over. So I came here. There was a car where the bar currently is. It was a disaster area. But I have pretty good vision and I like design and I like could see it. Like I could see that it could be a really cool space. And I went um, outside and he's texting me and he's like, how is it? How is it? How is it? And I was like, it's cool, but I have no fucking idea where I am. And I just, it didn't like resonate to me. It didn't make sense. My vision of what Williamsburg was, was a little dated. Like I thought it was much younger and sort of people with sleeves like yourself and big holes in their ears and very young kids. And that wasn't who I had ever cooked for before. And I was sort of in this very like, corporate world, but I didn't want to be in that world, but I didn't necessarily want to be in this world either. But this isn't the world that Williamsburg is. So business partner and I started spending a lot of time in Williamsburg. We would come here and we would kind of look like tourists and we would walk around and we would sort of try and understand who was living here and what the vibe was. And it sort of started to make sense. It was clearly like young professionals living here and a lot of families have, have moved here. And I'm actually still on the older spectrum for, for Williamsburg. Like I would say there are more people in their twenties and thirties than forties. I I'm definitely like the oldest person in my building for sure. Um, and I'm okay with that, but, but I, it just started to make sense and we decided to sort of take the risk of doing this and it was really foreign to me. And, but I sort of took the approach of let's do this and If it doesn't work and I fail, I can go back to Manhattan and get a job or open somewhere else. And I just was like, let's take the risk and do it. Um, But that that was like a four-month decision-making process. And then it took another 14 months to build it. So it was long. And I was living in the West Village, and I loved the West Village. And to me, that was sort of a big part of coming back to New York from Chicago, was that I could finally afford to live in the West village. And it made me really proud. And I lived in a fairly shitty apartment in hindsight. I thought it was the greatest apartment ever, Um, but it was like pretty, not a great apartment. It was small and very West villagey and just had a terrible kitchen and a terrible, a terrible bathroom. And, but it was charming and cute and it was in the West village and that's kind of made me happy. And um, I, so we opened Lilia in January of 2016, finally, and which was two and a half years after I left Avoche. And I was basically took a full year off and then kind of was, was building this. And I, it was eight months in, and I was the commute on Fridays and Saturdays was killing me at night. I I was obviously working much later than I now work two years later, but I was here every night and I was here long hours and I was here late and it was taking 45 minutes to an hour every night to get home. And I'm just not a commuter. And my lease was up and I had just gone through a lot of personal changes in my life. And I was like, I have to move. Like I have to get out of this apartment and it's time to go. And I didn't have like the mental capacity at the time to choose a neighborhood. Like I wasn't like, I didn't think Williamsburg was home, but it just made sense to move here and be close to the restaurant at the time. And so I moved here almost two years ago. And I think I finally admitted about three months ago that I really like it. And I'm really happy. <laughs> <laughs> and We're about to um, yeah. open a second restaurant, Williamsburg, two blocks from my house, yeah. um, which is pretty cool. And I think what's happened here is we've become, the restaurants become part of the community. And in turn, this does feel like home now. And I know so many people in Williamsburg now, just when I walk down the street that eat here and it's, it's home. And my business partner and I met living in the same building. And we now also live in the wow. same building.
0: I don't, you, I know you're not a basketball fan, so and, you, and mentioned, a fan. You, you mentioned you mentioned commuting to work. You're probably not aware of this, but this entire season, I commuted back and forth between uh, Brooklyn and Philadelphia.
1: I did not know that. It
0: was a challenge.
1: Why'd you do that?
0: Um, my my wife basically did not want to leave Brooklyn. You
1: took one for the team. That's I so did. nice.
0: I did. Um, probably going to take one for the team again. That's you know? awesome. <laughs>
1: Brooklyn, <or Philly>? Brooklyn, to <laughs> Philly. Not that
0: far. Uh, no, it's not you know, that it's, far. Like, it's it's basically four hours of my day it's, it's, it's yeah. four hours of my day. I mean, and it's, you, ha- it
1: and you go every day.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Every day. Game days. The only time I ever would stay over in Philly is, um, like after games, if we had practice the next practice It's like
1: day. nice private time though. Right. In the car. Yeah. Oh, you drive I,
0: you or know, someone's driving. Someone's in. driving me, but that's nice. <laughs> yeah. I'd nap. I take my nap. Nap. It's, do your emails. It's, it's amazing. Think about
1: podcasts.
0: Um, I, in, in my research notes, I don't want to quote you if you didn't say this, but in my research notes, there was something about how, for you, Manhattan represented success. And I feel like for a lot of people, that is true. Um, even myself growing up, uh, my mom, she briefly lived on the Lower East Side and worked in an art gallery in Soho. And so when I would come up to New York as a kid, you know, for AAU tournaments, and whatnot, we would always rock, walk around Manhattan. I don't think I, I stepped foot in Brooklyn. Uh, until like 2012 or 2013. And so for me, that, that idea of sort of being in the in crowd meant Manhattan. And that has obviously changed for me and it's changed for a lot of people over the last 10 years.
1: Yeah. It really changed for me. I think, you know, so I, I did all my training in Manhattan for nine years when I was a young cook. I moved here when I was 24 and I left when I was 32 to go to Chicago and I got this amazing opportunity at Spiaja in Chicago and I couldn't pass it up and it was career changing for me and life changing for me. And my brother lived there and had both his kids the year I moved there. And that was pretty special to be around for that. But Chicago really never felt like home. And and it's weird because my mom's from there and I grew up visiting my grandmother many times a year there. And like, I, I was very familiar with Chicago, but I would fly home to New York for weddings or work or whatever. And every time I got on a plane back to Chicago, I just, I, I would like get teary when I landed at O'Hare and I'm not that teary a person. And I, I just knew like, that it wasn't the place for me. And, but I did all my training in Manhattan. And I, again, like Brooklyn didn't have meaning to me and when I moved back here, like my definition of success, you did read that correct, was being successful in Manhattan. I wanted to emulate all the chefs that I had worked for in Manhattan. I wanted to be like those people and the dining scene in Brooklyn wasn't what it is today. And now I don't care at all. I mean, two and a half years into Lilia opening, I may open in Manhattan someday and I may not open in Manhattan someday. And it doesn't really matter to me. And I learned a big lesson that like success isn't about the location you're in, it's about what you're doing and how you're a part of a community and how people feel when they come to your restaurant. And that's really what it's become to to me. And the definition of success has also changed for me. The The definition of success used to be, you know, it wasn't all about awards and recognition, but I certainly grew up in that, in an era where that was important. And at a, at a Voce, Michelin stars were the goal and they weren't necessarily my goal but I was working in an environment where that was very important to my um owners and it was one of the reasons I took the job I was sort of driven by that like oh wow these people have like lofty goals they want michelin stars in every single restaurant and what I learned and and this is you can read about this in the book a little bit also but when I what I what I learned was that I wasn't driven by that I was driven by kind of cooking for people and mentoring people. And it wasn't, and I don't think I, I think I cooked great food at Evoce and I think I found my voice partially at Evoce. Um, But I don't think I truly found my voice because I think when you're cooking for Michelin stars or when you have these expectations or when you are when your bosses want you to get three stars and you buy into that in some way, you're not cooking for yourself and you're not really cooking for your guests. You're cooking for this like thing that you think you should be doing. Um, and it was really relieving when I, when I left a voce and when I took this time off to really kind of, search for what I wanted to do. And I didn't even know if I wanted to be a chef anymore, to be very honest with you. I sort of hoped that I had, I would have an epiphany and that some other thing in the food world would come to me and it never did. And I realized that this was sort of my time to open a restaurant. And, um, but I, I truly don't think like I found my, my voice until we opened Lilia and that voice kind of happened over the year that I wasn't working while I started cooking at home and sort of really enjoying just cooking simpler food with amazing ingredients. And that was still so flavorful and had a lot of depth, but wasn't about how many garnishes you had on it and wasn't about if it's going to get a Michelin star. And I I think in turn that definition of success really really changed and all I wanted to do was sort of make food that was craveable for people and hope that people wanted to come here multiple times a week that lived in the neighborhood and lily has become much more than that it's become a destination restaurant which i'm not sure i ever expected yeah, it has. and it has. and all the awards have come Yeah. and they're really meaningful they're really really meaningful on on different levels but I think they're more meaningful cuz it's not what I was shooting for. And and when you kind of don't shoot for it and it happens, it's it's just an incredible feeling.
0: You actually answered one of my questions before I could ask it. But I think a lot about I had Grant Ackets on my pod. Mm-hmm. We actually talked a little bit about this and I also talked with him about the San Pellegrino restaurant magazine, top 50 list. And we talked about yesterday did come out yesterday. We just talked about how subjective these things are. And it's interesting to me because in my profession, it's very easy for me to measure progress success because I have tangible results. I have makes and misses. I have wins and losses. Um, I can look at stats from year to year and say, "Oh, I'm getting better in these areas or not getting better in these areas. And so much of, um, A chef, uh, a restaurateur, like so much of the success is based on someone else's opinion or someone else's reaction to you. Every night. Rather than a. (laughs) Right. And I would imagine that is incredibly difficult, stressful, maybe.
1: Yeah. I think every night, I still, two and a half years into Lily opening, still kind of get that like pre whatever we open at uh, five o'clock on Saturdays and Sundays and five 30, the rest of the night and those 15, the rest of the week. And those, those 15 minutes before, um, we open where like, everyone's kind of rushing to get ready in the kitchen and the dining room's getting set up and there's a line outside to get in. And you're kind of watching that line and the anticipation of people. It's like doing a performance every night. And, and I've always sort of likened it to that, but it's, uh, There is this like kind of anticipation I still get and it's not it's not necessarily like nerves, but it's like you you I definitely feel like I'm going into a game every night and how we're going to perform and how's it going to be at nine o'clock. And are we going to satisfy people tonight and are we going to be on point and how are the cooks feeling and are the servers on point tonight and you can kind of feel energy like we do a pre service meeting every every night with the front of house staff. And um, sometimes they seem really engaged and sometimes they don't. And it's up to us to get them sort of pumped up. And the same with the kitchen. You can tell when the kitchen's really struggling to get set up and you can tell when they're really pumped for service. And my job is to make sure that they stay on point and that they're Excited for service. Our services are very long here and very intense. I, you've been here, you've eaten here, you can see the kitchen. They don't miss a beat and they don't stop for six yeah. hours. And and I'm not the person doing that anymore. I, I could never do what they do. I that is a young lady <laughs> and man's world. Um, but I I definitely um yeah, I think there's like an anticipation that still happens mm-hmm. every night and that idea of everyone's a critic. Now everyone's a critic on social media. Everyone's a critic that comes in here and just wants to be a guest.
0: You're describing the world that I live in. Yeah. Um,
1: And, and luckily (laughs)
0: everybody's an expert. Everybody's a Twitter GM, you know,
1: luckily most of the, most of the feedback we get is really positive and it's been really a, a nice thing, but once in a while you, you get a, direct message from someone that's not that nice and you try and make it better and some people just don't want to make it better yeah. um and and those are very far and few between for us we really i think have have created something very special here that people have reacted really positively to but we work really hard at that that's not that was the sort of ethos of the restaurant the rest, the ethos of the restaurant was invite people into our home and I wanted this to feel like my home that's why the kitchen is sort of built the way it is I wanted that that center station where I stand all night to feel like people could come up and talk to me and and they do all night long. Many of them call me Lilia, um, <laughs> which is not my name. Um, the piece of art hanging above your head is from my parents' home. Oh, that's um, and, it, and it's something I grew up with for the last 15 years. And my mom um, came here on opening night, and we didn't have anything on the walls. And she's like, you really need something on that wall. I'm going to send the painting that you wanted this whole time. And it came the next day. And I mean, this hung in their house forever and it was like really special to them. And I said, are you sure you don't, you don't want it? And they're like, no, we want you to have it. And you've never had a wall big enough in your house for it. So we're going to give it to you. But that, that whole idea, I mean, that's just a symbol, but to me, it's like, I walk in here every day and I feel like I'm in my parents' dining room, which is kind of cool.
0: So, okay. So chefs, people that back restaurants, uh, have different goals. And I brought up the top 50 list and it came out yesterday and I I glanced at it. I didn't study it too in depth, but I went to Japan last summer. And uh, we sort of did like uh, a food trip with with some buddies. And we went to um, some three-star Michelin places and some places that were on the top 50 list. One of which uh, moved up 30 spots this year. Wow. And it was probably the worst meal I've had at dining out in my life. (laughs) Um, And... You know, I, I, it's it's interesting to me to, because I've dined it now over the years, going back probably seven years on these lists, mm-hmm. you know, I've dined at dozens of these restaurants and very rarely do I walk away from the restaurant saying, oh, I crave that. But you have created uh, sort of the antithesis of that in a way, I still crave the pasta dish with the San Marzano tomatoes and the honey. Like oh, I still definitely. crave that. Um, and... I mean, that was a year ago. And I still think about that. I still think about the chicken I had that night that I, when I ate that's here. That's awesome. That may, um, that's
1: all I want to hear. No, that, I'm, be- I'm being that serious. That is all I want to hear.
0: What? So, and you, another thing I read in the research was just how you really strive for simplicity and consistency in a menu. Um, why? Why don't more chefs strive for that? Why don't more chefs strive for craving?
1: I think there's a, I think there's a few things. And I think going back to sort of what I was saying about finding your voice and what I was cooking at a voce and when your directive or your mission is is to be on lists and, and many people's mission is to be on lists. And it's not to say they're not interested in hospitality and they're not interested in creating something amazing. But when when you are, they're also driven by sort of a real refinement that I used to be driven by. And I'm not, I'm not driven by that refinement anymore. And I, when I was at Spiaggia, Spiaggia is a four-star restaurant with the most elegant food. And it was this amazing opportunity for me and I loved it, but I also struggled there and I struggled because it wasn't my natural way of cooking And I didn't know that at the time I was, that was my first executive chef job. So again, I was, and it was my first time cooking Italian food in the States. So there was like a huge learning curve. And I had also been out of fine dining for almost four years by the time I took that job. And so there were many things, but I think, I think I, there is a maturity level. I'm 47 and I thought I would open a restaurant by the time I was 30. I opened Lilia when I was 44 so i was 14 years behind my goal so to speak sure. and i think in those 14 years between 30 and 44 i did a lot of searching but i think in that real two and a half years in between leaving avoche and and actually opening this i i just started Cooking more like real cooking, I was cooking for myself and I was cooking for friends, and I was cooking at summer parties, and I was having fun cooking instead of like cooking because I thought this dish might satisfy a critic, or I thought this dish might satisfy my boss, who had a very elevated sense of of taste and in the <laughs> nicest way um, and i I think what happened. Was when I created the menu for Lilia, I wanted to cook food that I would want to eat every night. And aside from this kind of welcoming people into my home idea, I wanted to cook food that felt familiar to people, but also like food that they couldn't necessarily cook at home. Like it felt like they could cook it at home but there was enough nuance in it that no one kind of knew how I got from point A to point B, which yeah. is it, which is true. People don't quite 100 percent understand because it, on the surface it's very simple. But there's a lot that goes into the food at Lulia, even in the simplest dishes. And a lot of the simpler dishes are even harder to make. So like the Malfadini dish with the pink peppercorns yeah. and butter and parm, there are three ingredients in that dish. And it's probably the hardest dish to get right on the menu because if you miss one component or if the pasta is not cooked correctly or if the there's too much butter or not enough butter or whatever or if it's not if those components aren't married correctly together then you've totally missed the boat on that dish and it's and it's not easy to correct um but i i think i can't answer i can't answer why other chefs aren't different i mean cooking is an art and i think everyone yeah. expresses themselves through through a different art form and it just took me a really long time to be able to understand what I wanted my craft to really look like and I really grew into it over such a long time and I really, I mean, at at 45 years old, which isn't that old but it's not young in my career, I've been doing this for 25 years, I, I really feel like I finally found who I am in the kitchen and I And I'm not like searching for that anymore. And I think there's a comfort level in saying, you know what? I'm really comfortable putting on rigatoni with red sauce because that's what I would want to eat every night. And I wanted Lilia to be the restaurant that if I didn't work at night, I would want to go to every night. And it has become that place for people. Like people really feel at home here.
0: Uh, How do people get reservations?
1: Well, I'm being dead serious. Well,
0: (laughs) Because um, you guys are on Resi, right?
1: We're on Resi. And it's, it works. People it's think like, it doesn't it's work.
0: It's 12.01 a.m. pretty people, much, right? Are, 30 days out, 28 yes. days out. I need to know 30, the secrets. <laughs> ter-
1: well, I'm pretty sure you have access to reservations. But listen, here's the bottom line. We never expected this to happen. This kind of phenomenon of having this restaurant that is difficult to get into. Lilia is 72 seats, including the bar. 13 of those seats are bar seats that we don't take reservations for. So that leaves whatever, 60, uh, 73 seats, sorry. Yep. it's That leaves 60 seats. So I think this restaurant looks very big. It's has 16 foot ceilings. Sure. People think it's 150 seats. They come here, they're like, we don't understand why we can't get reservations. Um, we want to welcome everyone. This is not meant to be an exclusive restaurant. This is meant yeah. to... Um, be a very welcoming place where, where people can come. Um, and it's hard cause it's a small restaurant. We do our best to accommodate people. We meet people all over the place. My business partner and I, we hand out business cards to anyone who says, I can't, I can't get a reservation. How do I get in? I, I meet people all the time. I say, here's my card. Just email me and I'll make sure we get you a reservation. And, and we really, we, we honor that. I can't, there's only so many seats a night in this, in this place. Um, It's a little easier in the summer. We add 36 seats outside and those don't, we don't take reservations for either. So the walk-in capability becomes, um, becomes a little easier. And look, I going kind of back to that 15 minutes pre-service thing. I am, I remember the first night that there was a line outside and i've never worked in a cool hip restaurant in my life i i've worked in these very highfalutin restaurants often in office buildings oddly and i i've never worked somewhere that's kind of considered like in it place or a place you have to get into and the first time there was a line was we got reviewed by pete wells march 29th six weeks after we opened which is fairly quick. And I remember the first Saturday after that I was standing with my chef in the kitchen and you can see everything. And I looked outside and there was like this line of 30 people outside to get in. And I was like, what, what's going on? Like, I, I just never experienced it. And I still to this day, and the lines have gotten longer and I still to this day, I'm in on it and like knock on wood and, am so grateful that anyone would come stand in line to eat a bowl of pasta. Like <laughs> I, I just, I am not a waiter. Like it's not something I like to do. Right. I don't like to wait in lines. And I, I just am so honored that people line up here at four thirty so that they can eat at five o'clock. Cause they think it's the only time they can eat here, which yeah. is often true.
0: Yeah. Um, when I, when I came last June, we were celebrating my best friend's birthday. Um, we're, the two of us are married to identical twins.
1: Oh, wow. And I had,
0: I said. Wait,
1: you and your best friend married. We are best friends
0: because of, you the, married of the twins. Yes. That's. We, I didn't meet him till like 2012. That's But cool. I've known the twins since 2007. Okay. Uh, my wife and I are celebrating our eighth wedding anniversary this coming weekend. Oh,
1: congrats. Yeah, Are you coming here to celebrate?
0: We're going to Positano. Oh, <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay. Equal, equal, yeah, equally as yeah.
0: good. We're going to be on a boat. You do you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, so when I, we, I, you know, I, I was like, I couldn't, I literally couldn't get a reservation on the night we wanted to go. So I had, um, I had, uh, someone from, from my agency at the time. Uh, I was like, Hey, can you get us a reservation on Saturday, June 9th? And he's like, yeah, no problem. And, uh, he, a few weeks later, he emails us back and he's like, I got you a five fifteen. <laughs> that's all Rezzy had. And I was like, Oh, that's literally, I could have done that. <laughs> like, what the hell, man? Um,
1: Listen, I embrace eating at six o'clock. I yeah. ate dinner here last th- night at six o'clock. I don't often eat here, but I had um, three friends from high school that ate dinner okay. with me here.
0: Do you, do you uh, are you a pizza person? Oh like, Have God, you yes. been to Lucali? I, assumed, I've been to oh, Lucali. I assume so. Okay. But you obviously, <laughs> yes. you don't have to wait in line, right?
1: I mean, I don't give away my secrets. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so every time I've been, I mean, we should, we, we went uh, recently and it was, you know, it was like it's, an hour and a half and then we got our seat and then and then you're really to,
1: drunk by the time you eat because yeah. you go have cocktails somewhere.
0: Yeah. We would go to Clover club over on Smith street. I think
1: I might be able to help you with Lucali.
0: Okay. All right. I whatever. Think, I think
1: now that we're friends, I think I can help you. You won't have to wait. I mean, uh, I can't speak for that, but I can try.
0: I'm, I'm interested to hear about, uh, your, your time in Northern Italy. And I don't really know sort of the timeline or the year that that happened. When I had Grant Ackett's on the pod, um, he spoke about his five days at El Boule and just the, the influence and the, and, and the effect that that had on his philosophy, on his techniques, um, on his career. And, I, I'm, it would seem to me like that time in Northern Italy had a profound impact oh, on Oh, it was,
1: it was life-changing. So I was, I was working in New York and I was getting pretty burnt out. I was in a very intense job and I had always wanted to cook abroad and I just sort of hadn't done it yet. And I was 28, about to turn 29, I think. And I sort of was like, if I don't do this now, I, I'm like going to get in my 30s and I'm never going to do it. And so I quit my job and I went five weeks later to Italy with the help of the person that I was working for at the time. She and her husband hooked me up in my first restaurant and I think my second restaurant. And I literally didn't know a word of Italian. I certainly didn't have a cell phone at the time. It was a long time ago. And I, I, had, I was telling this story the other day. I had a disc man <laughs> with CDs to learn Italian and like a couple of dictionaries. And I just went and I landed in this town called San Marino, which is Emilia Romagna. And it's like kind of its own country with its own governance and a kind of a strange place. But that's where they sent me. And I lived with the cooks and sous chefs. And I went to work every day. And I quickly adapted to the lifestyle. And I threw away my CDs because that's not how people speak. And I wanted to learn real Italian and I was okay by the time I came home, but not, and I'm not, I don't speak Italian, but, and it was also a really long time ago, but I, I didn't know what Italian food really was until I went there. I didn't understand that every region was different and that every grandmother cooked differently. And I'm sure you know this, but I'm not Italian. So. It was a real to me Italian food was red sauce in New Haven, Connecticut, and baked ziti and fettuccine alfredo and pizza and meatballs and all that stuff and sure. and it, I didn't I didn't know that Italy essentially was twenty different cuisines and so I was really lucky because I got to experience three of those regions. I was in Emilia Romagna for a couple of months and then I was in Tuscany and it was really interesting because I went to work for the aunt of the first chef. In Emilia Romagna, and to see two families who kind of cooked very differently, who lived a half an hour apart, was was extraordinary. And then I went to Friuli, way up north, which I didn't even know what Friuli was. And I was supposed to go to um, Bergamo and in, in Lombardy, and there wasn't room in this guy's kitchen, and. Italians are so gracious. And he's like, look, I am sorry. Like I know you were supposed to come here. I don't have room in the kitchen, but I'll send you to any, anywhere you want to go to one of my friend's restaurants. And I said, I don't, I don't care. I'll go anywhere. Like I, I don't know the country. And so he sent me to Friuli and it, that was incredible. Cause that has a lot of Eastern European roots in the cooking. And it's just a very different cuisine. And I just feel so lucky that I got this introduction and then, um, But I really, I learned how to make pasta there. I I learned a culture. I learned about ingredients that I would have never known about. But when I came home to New York, I still wasn't ready to become an Italian chef. And I was like getting all these offers and I never wanted to be pigeonholed into one cuisine because I was interested in a lot of different things. I was interested in Asian cuisine. I was interested in sort of this globally influenced thing at the time. And I didn't I had no plans to become an Italian chef. And then, but I always gravitated towards Italian ingredients and even more so after I came back. I was always fascinated by, you know, really handcrafted mozzarella and ricotta and olive oils and balsamics. And I was I was fascinated by these ingredients. And then I got the call from Spiaggia. This was almost four years after I came home from Italy. And I had been working at the Soho Grand Hotel, which is a, a little known fact about me. Um, I knew that. I knew that you did your research, but it's not talked <laughs> been, it's not been talked there a few about. Times, yeah. I'm sure you have. I <laughs> I it's not talked about a lot. And and it wasn't food and beverage wise. It was a very insignificant part of my career. Yeah. But from like learning about management and business, it was hugely significant. And and part of why I I ended up at Spiaggia because I sort of had this fine dining thing and this Italian thing and this weird, like worked for a big corporate place thing that all were really important to the company that's Spiaggia is part of. And um, I was like, all right, I guess I'm ready to do Italian, but I was really scared because I just didn't know that much about it. So that's sort of when I started like really delving deep into books and research and kind of teaching myself about every region. And um, and Tony Montuano, who's the chef owner of, of Spiaggia, was such an incredible resource. I mean, he taught me most of what I know about Italian food.
0: And you, uh, you cooked for the Obamas? It's a true while story. We there, it's a true story. Once, twice? No, 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 like a, Multi- lot. Okay. a lot,
1: But they don't really <laughs> it, like. That's what what, been what a year was below this? They... It was pre pre presidency. Okay, so they were. So he I was left, the Senator. At I the time. yes, so I left in two thousand and eight. Okay, right before. The election, um, and it was really interesting to sort of see the progress. First of all, I just want to go on record and say, like, the whole me cooking for Obama thing <laughs> has been blown very out yeah. of proportion by the media. Okay, they latched onto it because they had nothing else to latch onto when I moved here from Chicago because I was relatively unknown, and that was a cool thing to talk about. I um, I did cook for them many times. I met them. Once or twice, but most of the time. Were they friendly people? They're awesome. They were awesome. And, and they, they were friendly and they were normal and they were like really into food. So like they would come and dine, like they, and they were most often just the two of them on date night. And it was, it was great, but like, it wasn't like I was sitting at their table and hanging out with them. And, and most of the time, Tony would greet them. It was his restaurant. and um,
0: I mean, that is Barack's like. It's his favorite restaurant it, it, in Chicago, it, right? Sure. Yeah. It was at the yeah. time.
1: I don't, I don't know what it, yeah. if it is now, but at the time, yeah, definitely. They came yeah. for every like birthday, anniversary, special occasion, and then just kind of when they wanted to go out. But it was really interesting to see the progression of when I moved there in 2003, and he was you know, just becoming well-known, and to see what happened by 2008, and just to see the difference in security detail. And it, it was a pretty fascinating experience.
0: I assume you get celebrities in Lilia.
1: We do, but we don't talk about any of them.
0: You don't talk about it? Nope. That is so sweet.
1: (laughs) We're just, we want, we want celebrities to feel at home here. Yeah. And I think, I think that one of the reasons they come here is because we don't talk about it and we treat them like we treat the guy living across the street.
0: Going back to Obama, I just have to put this back. So. <laughs> still on Obama. No, I, I still I, Obama.
1: I, nine years later. Actually, we're almost no, ten years
0: we're later. No, this is an anecdote. This has nothing to do with you cooking for him. I'm using air quotes. Um, <laughs> I've been on a like a, a Bourdain sort of thing on Netflix over the last couple of weeks, and uh, after I watched like my third episode last night, I watched Obama on Letterman show on his Netflix oh, show. Oh, no, I saw that. And it just, man. You miss the guy. You miss the guy. Yeah. It's it's amazing how how good of a human he seems to be. Yeah. And how how different it is right now.
1: <laughs> oh, we're gonna go political. No, huh? We're not gonna go. We're gonna go political, Just had to say. Huh?
0: It. Uh are you familiar? Have you heard the term creative destruction? No. You ha- you haven't? Okay.
1: Am I supposed to?
0: No. Oh. I'd never heard it before a month ago.
1: Oh, great. Um I'm so excited I'm, to learn
0: something new. No, I'm, I'm, I'm reading this book. Um, I was reading this book. I finished it. It's called The New Brooklyn, um, written by, I believe her name is Kay Heimowitz. Uh, she's, a, she's a Park Slope resident. Um, and and uh, the, the, the essence of creative destruction in an economic term, I'm going to read the definition. Um, it's the process of industrial mutation that incessantly revolutionized the economic structure from within, incessantly destroying the old one. And essentially creating a new one. Okay. So, am
1: I supposed to remember that? No, you're not.
0: (laughs) The idea behind it, though, is that, you know, creative types, what they're doing is they're constantly sort of taking something that's old and irrelevant and making it into something new. Um, And she has a bunch of examples and she uses Williamsburg as sort of the prime example of this idea of creative destruction. And uh, as I'm reading this book, I'm literally thinking of you. And then I find out that, you know, you're, you're opening a new restaurant in in Domino Park which used to be a sugar refinery um and i th- this whole notion of creative destruction is one of really the most attractive things to me about like being in a place like Brooklyn in in a, in a post-industrial city trying to find its way
1: yeah i think i think that's been one of the most appealing things about being here once Once we got here and once we became part of this community, I certainly am not gentrifying Williamsburg. It's it's gentrified. But what became really important to to myself and to my partner, and it was not something that either of us had necessarily thought about, was how how to become part of a community. Because when we saw that Lilia was becoming that and that people were so excited that we were here and we have an all-day cafe and sometimes we see people twice a day, once in the morning at the cafe, and then they come back for dinner. Um, I think that that became something that when we look at any property for a new project, we, that is one of our main focuses. And so to be able to be a part of that and kind of a redefinition of a neighborhood, have you been to Domino Park yet?
0: I went on Saturday and it's incredible. I mean, it's I took my two boys. I have a four-year-old and two-year-old. Oh, so the playground <laughs> oh, and the water sh- fountain setup is amazing. We, we ate at Danny Meyer's taco we yeah. had a little snack there. Um, you know, obviously you look behind and you see the, the, the buildings they're doing, they're going to redo the, the, the sugar refinery, but you know, it's, it's like constantly changing. It um,
1: changed the neighborhood almost overnight. Yeah. So I live three blocks from there and the restaurant is in the building directly behind the park, the big, um, square Yeah, the, opening. Donut, yeah donut the, don- the donut. Um, and we really, I mean, we had, we had looked at spaces for a long time and we kind of came about this and, and we met with them and just the whole idea, it wasn't like, Oh, this is a cool space. It was like, Oh, we can be a part of this redefinition of a neighborhood. And and that's what the most appealing part of it was to us. This The space is nice, but it's in a new building. It certainly doesn't have what Lilia has inherently, and, and it'll be a very pretty restaurant. But really, the, the driving force behind us making that decision was meeting w- with Jed Walentis, who's the visionary behind all of this, and understanding his vision and and wanting to be a part of that. And and it's super exciting. And it's super exciting to see the park come to fruition. My partner and I went and kind of snuck in the grounds when we first started talking to them. And it was nothing. I mean, I have these pictures from two years ago. And now to compare them to what they built there is, is just insane.
0: In everything I've read about you and talking to you for the last 30 minutes or so, um, you strike me as someone who um, has incredible attention to detail, obviously a great eye. Um, but someone who um, really enjoys the process, and I think that's part of the reason that, you know, I, I wanted to talk to you. I, like, for me, that's the joy out of what I have in my job is, is the process, is meticulously planning my days, planning my workouts, planning my pregame routines, like doing all of those things that ultimately lead up to the event and then seeing sort of the transformation that takes place. And some of it is physical, right? With my body. And some of it is sort of the results that you get on the other side. And it seems to me like you enjoy that as well.
1: I do enjoy the process. I think I, you know, and I've changed my process a, a lot over, over the past several years. And my process, I think, in in the past was a little bit more intellectual i had to study italian food because i had to understand it and and i would spend hours and hours reading books and reading books in italian that i didn't 100% understand but i could get the gist of them and i had this real sort of it was it was sort of about educating myself and i you know i a I came to this sort of, as cooking goes, not late, but I had finished, I was almost finished with college when I started this. So I was into learning and this has become something that was really great for me to learn about. Cause it was also very physical and hands-on and I could actually do something with the learning. I'm not an academic person and, and school wasn't always like my, my strong point. I had to study a lot in school to do okay. And I picked very challenging schools to go to. Um, but I think, yeah, there's a, there's a process of, and I do have funny kind of habits. I, I, in terms of like a daily process, Owning the business has definitely shifted those a lot. When I was just the chef of, of Oce, I had a very specific routine. I would get there at 1014 every day. I, I mean, my staff would be like, oh, it's 1014. She's here. 1014 every morning. I would walk from the West Village through Madison Square Park, stop at that restaurant first, then go uptown. And but I would do my invoices at the same time every day. I would change my clothing at the same time every day. I would come upstairs for lunch at the same time every day. It was very, very, very routine. And I'm not like a type A super anal person, but I do have this crazy attention to detail. And I am I am kind of a, a routine person so owning the business in with Lilia my days are all over the place but there are specific things about the routine that still exists so I come here at different times every day I'm not cooking here all day I have an amazing team who executes how I need them to execute and they're really passionate about it and I, at this stage of my life want want to be a chef, but I also want to be an entrepreneur and and I want to be able to do other projects and I want to be able to sit here and talk to you and and you can 't do that if you 're cooking fourteen hours a day it 's not possible, so the routine has definitely changed, but i I definitely have rituals still that happen here, and you know I usually get here and then I go to pre shift and I never change until five o'clock and I always kind of change at the same time and I kind of go stand by the pass every night and chill with the guys before we open. And there's just like this, there's a, a thing that happens, but in terms of process, the creative process has kind of stayed the same. I generally, when I start to feel antsy about the menu, I it usually happens in the middle of service when i'm looking at dishes and i'm annoyed by them or i'm sick of them or i'm bored or they're about to go to, out of season and i usually take a menu and i just start xing everything out and then i start writing ingredients down and there's definitely a process creative destruction creative destruction i also You're doing that to a menu take <laughs> a, you know the um you know the uh like the tickets that come out of the machine when you're when you're getting orders in. I use that paper yes, a lot. Yes, I do. <laughs> I use the paper a lot, and I yeah. have in my apartment right now 20 of them lined up that are all menu notes for the new place and ideas that come to my head. And it's not the most organized fashion of doing things, but it's a process that's worked for me for years.
0: Every Sunday during the off-season – I make 342 shots and when I tell people that they give me the they give me the look you just gave me. It's a random number. When I explain it it actually makes some sense. Okay. But you the 1014 like <laughs> why 1014 and I also don't know. if you're like walking around and you got there at 1009 like you just wait 5 minutes before No, you walk it in wasn't the door. that exact
1: but the, it was just like a thing that yeah. I would always end up there. I probably left my house okay. at the same I left my house at the same time, probably almost every day, I would go get coffee at the same place every day, I would walk to work when it was nice out. And it was just like a a thing, like, but it's not, I'm also the type of person, like, if I don't have a boss here, but if I'm like feeling like I'm late, I get massive anxiety. So like, if I want to be here, if I say on a given day, like, oh, I want to be at Lilia by three o'clock today, and I'm here at 315. I get anxiety about it. Okay. And I don't have anyone to answer to and why I have to be here at 3:15. It's just a thing.
0: I understand that. <laughs> I understand. That. Ritual. You've you've mentioned the word maturity a couple of times. Uh part of that is uh eventually growing into a role of mentorship and and I read that you that's another part of entrepreneurship that you enjoys or your current role is that you get to mentor people. What does that look like for you now? And also Um, you know, who were, who were your mentors or your, your main mentor, uh, early in your career?
1: I, you know, honestly, every person that I work for have worked for has sort of played a role in, in shaping who I became as a chef. And I think I've taken like a piece of a lot of different people. Tony Montuano is by far my, my biggest mentor. I I was at Spiaggia for five years and were best friends i am probably seeing him tonight actually he's in new york and um he not only taught me about cooking great food and understanding italy and understanding elegance and understanding these italian principles of this wonderful italian life but he he taught me about you know being a very calm chef. I, I worked for Tony for five years and granted he, at the time that I worked for him, he wasn't in the kitchen all day, every day having to do the discipline. So you don't see that side of uh, of a chef, but he, I never heard him yell at a person. He's always kind. He knew how to talk to people. He had a very directed philosophy on food. Um, and he was just really supportive and, and never, never selfish in his endeavors of how he mentored me so at year three he sat me down and he said what are we going to do with you and I said what do you mean he said well something has to happen with you I think he saw something in me and he knew that I didn't love Chicago and which I think was always hard for everyone because they were all Chicagoans and I was always like "Eh, I don't like it here that much Um, and I (laughs) at year three sat me down I said what are we going to do I said listen I I have to get back to New York at some time, at some point, like it's really important for me to live there and going back to that idea of success. Like I could have opened 10 restaurants in Chicago and been very successful. And I wouldn't have felt that, that success level that, that Manhattan meant to me. And he was really supportive and he said, okay, well let's figure out how to make that happen. And there was a point where we were going to open a restaurant here together. And I was flying back and forth and, looking at real estate and I had no idea what I was doing. And then the avoce thing came about and I had to go to him and say, I have this kind of thing on the table. And at first he was like, kind of mad. Cause he was like, I thought we were going to do this together. And then I met with them. He was gracious enough to let them come taste in the restaurant. I mean, I told him, I said, they're coming to, to Chicago and they want to come taste the food. And he was like, okay. And he kind of hung around to meet them for a second. And then he went home and the next day I met with them and they basically gave me an offer and I went back to him and I said, listen, they gave me a pretty huge offer. Like I kind of, I kind of have to go. And he said, oh no, 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 you have to go. And that, that to me is mentorship, letting someone, I mean, a big part of mentorship is letting someone grow. And obviously you want to keep your people forever, if Spiaggia was in New York or if they had said to me, we'll open a place for you in New York or we want to open a Spiaggia in New York, I probably would still be with them today. Wow. Um, wow. I, I loved working with him. We had yeah. an amazing creative compatibility and we understood each other and we traveled a ton together. I did every event with him for five years all over the country. Um, but there are other mentors too. Uh, you know, John DeLucy, who, who was my sh- chef at the Soho Grand, who's, a great chef, but really, he's just a good person in many ways. He taught me how to be nice. I, I was a hot-headed young sous chef, wow. and I only knew one way of managing. I don't see
0: that. I don't see that. It
1: dissipated. It went away. <laughs> part you can read about it in the book. Part part of what part of what those two years off were were, were really. I didn't. I just want to give John DeLucie a shout out because he always says, "I only." It's fair. I, he he only he always says I that he only taught me how to type because I also didn't know how to use a computer. And then I was in this like corporate environment, but he really taught me how to be nice to people and how to talk to people properly and how to listen. It didn't get enacted until many years later. Like I wasn't able to, to execute what he had taught me very well, but I I give him a lot of credit because I watched him in very high pressure environments. And I just watched how he dealt with people and he just was different than other chefs I had worked with in the past. And um, that that part of, when I was at Avoce, I was in a very high pressure environment and I had these expectations and trying to maintain Michelin stars in two very large restaurants and finding my own voice at the same time. And I, I felt a lot of pressure and, and not something I could have articulated to you Five years ago. This isn't like necessarily why I left Avoce. Like I, this is all sort of hindsight and introspection and and doing a lot of work on myself. But part part of me becoming me and why Lilia is, is is a success has nothing to do with food or wine or my design aesthetic. It has to do with me taking the time. I didn't like the person I was becoming at Avoce. I I I felt this internal thing and I I just didn't I didn't like me and I had never experienced that before and I'm a good person inherently I my parents have instilled incredible values in me and I work hard but I was kind of like for lack of a better word a little a little angry and and some of that is an environmental thing. And when you have that pressure on you, it comes down to you and you're at the top and you don't know how to handle it. So you pass that down to everyone below you. And I didn't understand that that's what I was doing at the time, but I definitely was doing it and I wanted to fix it and I didn't know how to fix it. And I left and I did a lot of kind of soul searching and I calmed down a lot and I got physically healthy, which helped me become mentally healthy. I lost 40 pounds in that in that time I was off and I've kept most of it off and I got in shape and I just became sort of a better version of myself. And Lilia would not be Lilia if I was the same person I was at a voce. I am able to maturely run a kitchen and talk to people in a different way. And that's not to say I don't ever get agitated and that things don't make me annoyed and that I,